I'm going to start by praying for us, um, and I'm going to pray for myself as well as uh, for all of you. Uh, I told Chad and I told Kevin uh, a few minutes ago, um, preparing to do this, what I'm about to do sometimes, um, goes a lot of different ways during the week. Uh, this has been an incredibly difficult week for me. Um, in fact, uh, what I'm about to talk about and what I've experienced this week, what I've experienced feels like an, a hatchet that is kind of really um, trying to chop down the tree of the truth um, that I believe the Lord has for us this morning. If I start crying, uh, it's nothing to do with you, uh, so you can rest uh, and know that I'm not feeling awkward uh, because of your facial responses or anything like that. this has just been very, very deep water for me this week. Water that I don't feel like uh, I need to be swimming in right now. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of knowing you had to go do something. And even knowing you needed to do it and it was the good thing and the, and the true thing to do. But just feeling like you wanted to puke. Um, I'm going to attempt to not vomit on you this morning um, by God's grace. Uh, and believe really uh, that he has something for you and for me this morning in what is going to get communicated. So... Let me pray to that end, and then uh, we'll dive into this text in Colossians. Lord, it's very easy uh, to be here this morning to sing songs, to do something that is um, maybe in the fabric of even our culture uh, as believers, to just be here uh, this morning. Um, But Lord, I know that as uh, you peel back the layers, um, as you inevitably do and your word does, um, oftentimes... This is the last place I want to be. Um, That it's a very, very difficult place to be sometimes, Father. And uh, we are in such vast need of your comfort and of your truth and of an experience of that, Lord, um, to keep us here. (laughs) To keep us uh, wanting to be with you. So, Lord, I ask um, in your mercy this morning that you would do that over these next uh, few minutes, that you've already started with this worship through song, that you would lead our hearts um, to a place of rest and peace uh, as a result of your truth. Um, We trust you with that, Father, in your name, amen. Well, Chad read uh, earlier, wow, I closed my eyes and then I opened them, it's very bright in here. Um, Chad read uh, the first part of Colossians 1. We are starting a series in Colossians uh, this Sunday. So you're here for the, uh, for the kickoff of the series in Colossians. And um, this is the first sermon in that series. Colossians, I don't know whether you're familiar with it at all. Uh, it's probably a book that if you spent any time in the New Testament, you've at least come across. Uh, probably because it's short. And it's uh, semi-approachable due to its length. Uh, It's a four-chapter book in the New Testament. I'd encourage you to turn to it uh, if you have a Bible with you right now. Um, Historians tell us, and we have uh, a lot of things within Scripture and even without, that this was written by Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, And it is a letter to a young, and not young as in age, as a lot of people in this room are, but young as in new uh, church, that is in Colossae, or Colossae. I seriously, I can't even tell you how many times I've tried to say that. Like, I don't even know necessarily how to pronounce it. Where the, the Colossians lived, uh, Colossae. I'll say Colossae today. 
which at different points uh, through history was a thriving town. This was an important town at certain points in history, in Roman history. Um, and I was doing a little bit of reading, a little bit of studying on the background, uh, the context of this town. Uh, I, I guess a major trade road ran through this town. Um, but at a certain point, uh, maybe 5th, 6th century, uh, that road got diverted through a different town. And as a result, um, like, I don't know, have you seen like motels in small towns in America? Uh, it's, have you ever wondered that when you drive by it? Like, why would anybody put a motel there? Like, this is like on the biggest cornfield road in the middle of nowhere. Well, it's because highways didn't exist at one point. Uh, these were the roads that people traveled to get places in America, and so that's why a hotel was there. Same thing with the Colossians. Uh, this was a thriving town that had dwindled at this point to a relatively insignificant place in the picture of the Roman Empire. Now, I just stated this, and it seems somewhat like, okay, thank you for the obvious, Pastor, um, uh, that this is a letter that Paul was writing. He's writing it from prison. Um, We have no record in Scripture that Paul ever visited this town. Uh, Only record that he visited the region, this certain area, make up of a certain amount of towns. And based on 1-7, which Chad read, Epaphras... Uh, which is the guy who we come to understand is the person who planted the church in Colossae. (laughs) Uh, He was the one who brought the gospel to this place. And then later on in 4.12, we're not going to get to that point. Obviously today we're not going to teach the the entire book of Colossians. It indicates that he is actually with Paul at the time of this writing. And I want you to hear this. He is likely, he's the cause of, This guy is a guy who traveled 1,300 miles to where Paul was at to literally ask him, will you write a letter to my fellow church, my brothers, the people who are in Christ in Colossae? Will you write a letter to them? Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about why Paul's writing this letter. The reason for the letter, and this is really, really important for us this morning, and I know this is like, I didn't come here for a history lesson, but just trust me, the context of this is important. In fact, that's really what we're going to talk about mostly this morning, is this question, is context important? Does context matter? Because I believe that is really what Paul is striking at in the heart of the Colossians, is saying, your context matters. So the reason for the letter, and we'll see this unpacked over the series of these sermons, Uh, But for our purposes this morning, I'm going to try to give you a broad or an overarching picture of why Paul is writing this church. And here's what I believe uh, that it is. He is writing them, and I know I just kind of say this, he is writing them to remind them, this is now your context. The fact that you are in Christ contextually defines everything about you now. He is writing them to call them to remember, to understand, probably in a deeper way than they ever have, that the gospel of Christ is now their context. It's their framework. It's a frame, like you frame a piece of art. It's the frame for which they are now to see all of their lives. Not just portions of their lives. Everything that is in your life is to be looked at through this frame. He says this, in Colossians 2, 9, so again, I'm, kind of, I'm going to touch a little bit on the perimeter of Colossians. He says, For in Christ 
All of the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. If there is ever a contextual statement, there is a contextual statement for you and I. And he's not just talking to the church, uh, you know, to the Colossians. He's speaking to, that, to us today. This is your context. You have been given fullness, completeness, everything you need for life and godliness, Paul says other places, in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. This is your context. Colossians 2.2 refers uh, to this, and this is something, this is important, this, this fits in the context. Many of the churches, you would find this if you studied any of the books that Paul, or any of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches in, in the New Testament, many of the New Testament churches were undergoing uh, heretical teachings. Heretical is probably a word that uh, we don't throw around very much here. But basically, um, and I would challenge you to think, we, we are constantly as individuals uh, in this today day and culture under the uh, influence of heresy. And I'll give a definition for heresy later, but heresy at the time, things like Gnosticism was, a, uh, was something that was going on in the second century at this time, syncretism um, that led to the, the blending of Christianity with Judaism, paganism, Greek mythology. Basically, uh, what I'm getting at is, is that there was an absolute conglomeration of ideas and thoughts uh, that were colliding, and people were, as a result, uh, I don't like using this word, bastardizing, but that's what they were doing. They were bastardizing the gospel. They were taking a portion of what the gospel was, and then they were actually mixing it, like making a giant cocktail. It's like the Long Island iced tea of theology. Um, <laughs> did I just say that? <laughs> um, they're, they're mixing a bunch of different things and therefore reducing the gospel in its purest form. Now, there was no indication that Gnosticism, which was this, uh, I won't even go into that at too length, uh, but basically this idea that there was some special knowledge that was to be had out, outside of the gospel that really wasn't knowledge at all. It was some mystical, even uh, known at sometimes to be an occult movement. Uh, that there was some special knowledge that was to be revealed that was really setting up a hierarchy within the church to where people uh, could or could not necessarily be saved. But we don't have any indication that Gnosticism was really uh, where this was fully developed, but really more syncretism. And what that describes, and I kind of said this, is that they were doing a bit from that, a bit from here, a bit from there, kind of parsing together the system with which the framework for which they live their lives from a lot of different things. So this is the audience, this is the place within which Paul is writing the letter to the Colossians. Now, it doesn't take like a massive, huge leap uh, for us to see this in our own today culture, does it? Like our, our culture is the blending of different values and systems. I'm not even just talking about our American culture. I'm talking about our Christian culture. I'm talking about you and me here today in this room. It's the blending of different values and systems to the point of homogenization, tastelessness, no conviction, systems that lack power and that are marked by loveless tolerance.
This makes me feel like Britney Spears with this mic on, so I was actually kind of excited to get it off. Um, <laughs> so, does context matter? And I, I'll just encourage you this. If you want something to do this week, based on just what I've said already, ask God to show you where am I doing syncretism? Where am I taking bits and pieces of things and incorporating them into the framework of my life and and those things are actually choking out the gospel truth. I cannot tell you, I could give you a list of the ways that that happens in my own life, but the Holy Spirit can lead you into seeing where is it that I'm doing that. So does context matter? Does it matter? Randy uh, shared an article with me. Um, I would encourage you to read it. I don't have time to go through the entire thing today. It's called Pearls Before Breakfast. Uh, it's a Washington Post article from 2007 about a man, Joshua Bell. Anybody familiar with who that is? The violinist. Um, I guess the world's greatest violinist or one of the world's greatest violinists who um, did an experiment with a guy from the Washington Post. And what he did was is he went and took his uh, violin, which was a 3.5 million dollar Stradivarius, built in 1710, um, which is hard for us to even conceptualize an instrument that old, um, took a three-block taxi ride to a major station um, in Washington, a subway station, and they did an experiment. And what they had him do was they had him play uh, about. Well, I'll just read to you. It says. Uh, it was 7.51 on Friday, January 12th, in the middle of the morning rush hour. In the next 43 minutes, so for 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people passed by. Almost all of them were on their way to work, which meant for most of them a government job. Uh, Font Plaza is the nucleus of federal Washington. These were mostly mid-level bureaucrats with those intermediate, oddly titled jobs, policy analyst, project manager, Budget officer, specialist, facilitator, consultant. So 1,097, almost 1,100 people walk by this guy in 43 minutes as he's playing a $3.5 million violin. It's in the hands of the most capable violinist in the world. Months before this, he had played in Washington for for a $1,000 a minute performance. So what do you think happened? Anybody pay attention? Would you pay attention? Do you pay attention? Here's what happened. Things never got much better. In the three quarters of an hour that Joshua Bell played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance at least for a minute. 27 gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and change. That leaves 1,070 people who hurried by, oblivious, many only three feet away, few even turning to look. An art curator, uh, Mark Lethenhauser, uh, gave an explanation for why he believed this happened. He, he used this explanation uh, by t- telling of another story where they had taken a $5 million painting, unframed it, and moved it into a diner 
to see if anybody would notice that this $5 million painting is hanging on the wall. Have you ever been to like Phillips Delicatessen in Brentwood? Anybody have been there? Go there and just study what's on the walls and it'll make you laugh. It looks like Phillips' great, great, great grandmother, uh, like, cleaned out her garage and he decided that's what I'm going to decorate everything in my delicatessen with. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's like a beer stein with like a picture of like a bird's nest next to, you know, like a pirate picture. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so jumbled. But you can imagine if you were to hang a $5 million painting in Philip's delicatessen, would someone even notice it or would it just get lost in all the other junk uh, that we find around the room? This guy said that Joshua Bell, in fact, he, he was, in short, art without a frame. Context matters. If you would have put Joshua Bell in a symphony hall and advertised that he was going to be there, thousands of people would have spent money to come hold their coughs back with every movement to hear this man who is a master of the violin play his $3.5 million Stradivarius. But yet, if you take the exact same dude, throw him in a terminal at a subway station, no one stops to listen. The context is very, very, very important. Now we could probably all tell stories about how we, as a result of our context... And I think that's really how most of us live our lives. It's how I live my life. I can't hear the tune of the gospel so often because my focus, my context, isn't the gospel. It's something else. We need context to understand something, to appreciate something for what it truly is, to let the beauty of something... And let me hear you, or hear me say this. There is nothing more beautiful in your life than the gospel. Listen to the tune. Just stop for a second and hear the beauty of the fact that when you could do nothing for yourself, he did something for you. That his love was so pervasive that when we were even enemies, he loved us. All of us. All as different as we all are. Let the beauty of it stop you and stop our relentless quest for more or what's next. Because that is the context of our culture. Not just American culture, world's culture. I want more and what's next. It's an absolute inability to perceive the beauty of what's going on right here and right now and what we already have. N.T. Wright wrote a quote out of his, or I'll give you a quote out of his commentary on Colossians. He says, Paul gives the Colossians a theological framework of understanding within which they will be able to make sense of what God is doing in their lives. He's saying the context that Paul is giving them gives them the ability to make sense of what's going on in their life. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what I want? I want to understand and know what in the world is going on in my life. Without this framework, so without this context that Paul's given them, experience, what you and I are going through every single day, remains ambiguous even potentially misleading. It's a beautiful insight. It remains ambiguous and misleading. What's going on? I don't really know why. I'm going to go over here and try to figure it out. We find ourselves wandering down limitless paths that have nothing to do with the gospel. Context matters. So, 
question for you and I this morning. What is the framework for your life? If you do not believe that you walk through that door, not only with a framework, but a very, very developed framework, you're absolutely wrong. Stop and ask this question. Is the gospel, the gospel in its purest form, as Paul is challenging the Colossians to, is that my framework? Is the gospel my framework at all? Is my framework some casserole? I love that word, casserole. I like casseroles. Some casserole of ideas that are societally acceptable, you know? Enough that you get enough affirmation for kind of how you think and do things or not too much flack so that you feel pretty good about your life. Isn't that really it? Isn't that where most of us find ourselves? Just this kind of globbing together, this casserole, this cleaning out of the refrigerator of value. I'm just going to open it up and I'm going to make goulash. That's a northern dish. I'm going to make chili with whatever I can find and then I'm going to feed from that. That's the place from which I'm going to eat. Give myself sustenance. Is feeling good the framework for your life? Is that the goal? That's the frame that everything passes through. If this makes me feel good, then then this has got to be what's right. This has got to be what's true. Everything you experience or do or think is passing through a framework, a philosophy, a creed. That infers that if the gospel isn't the framework, then undoubtedly something else is. And the question is what? My golf game is a good example of this. Some of you in this room have played a lot of golf with me over the last six months. Um, I have a really screwed up framework right now for where I should be at in my golf game. I play with guys like Randy and Joel and Chad and Griffin, others who are very, spent their whole lives playing this game, and yet I find myself... So, 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 so. There's a shift that's gone on for the people in Colossians. And there's a shift that has gone on for you and I today. And it is a shift that has nothing to do with our race or our ethnicity or our folklore or our politics or our language, which, by the way, are all the things that we tend to talk about as the defining characteristics of our lives. It's a shift. It's a change that is a result of faith. So, Colossians, let's go to that actual text uh, Colossians 1, um, we'll kind of reread it, bring ourselves up to speed. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Now that's, we're going to focus primarily on verses 3 through verse uh, 6. 
faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all the saints that spring from the hope that is stored up for you. But the first thing, before we even push off, before we shove off, we always thank God when we pray, he says in verse 3, because we heard of your faith and love that spring from the hope. Now, doesn't it strike you as odd and interesting that he was saying to them, I thank God because of what I see in you. I don't thank you. I'm not thankful to you that I see faith and love expressing itself and springing forth from hope. I'm thankful to God. This is an important thing. It's ironic, George, that you're here this morning. This is something you taught me a long, long time ago. Um, but I think it's a, it's a pattern that we can see. We can see it in the life of Christ. We can see it in the workings of Paul and all of his letters. And that is this, comfort before you teach. Paul calls these guys, he's writing to them because of heresy, remember? The dangers of going off into a line of thought that is uncoherent with the gospel. He starts off with saying, holy and faithful brothers, I'm so thankful for you because of the faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have that spring forth from the hope. Jesus oftentimes healed people, ministered to their actual physical situation before he revealed the supernatural understanding of who he was and what he was up to. Paul, before warning them of their potential errors, reminds them of what is true about them in Christ. He's comforting them. He's calling them back into what is true about them. Thankfulness implies that the faith, that the love, and that the hope, the fact that he's thankful to God implies this, that he believes that their faith and that their love and their hope have their origin in God. That he is the originator, that it is his action, not their action, that he's celebrating. He's communicating something paramount here, especially in light of that heretical stuff that we were talking about. That your position in Christ, and you need to hear me say this this morning to you guys, and I need to hear myself say it to myself, is as a result, my position in Christ is as a result of God's initiation. He is the originator. It's a God-initiated thing, and God will finish it. First Philippians verse 1, uh, 3 through 6 talks about the idea that he who began a good work in you, he will bring that to completion. Now this should produce, and I'm, t- I'm giving this to you as an important thing, this is a part of our framework as Christ followers. Thankfulness, gratitude, a deep sense of appreciation of what God has done on our behalf which involves humility, y'all. Deep humility. That is an important part of the framework by which I look at all of my life, not just the good in my life, the suffering that's in my life. And we'll talk in a second how hope is a framework for suffering. So if that's true, if thankfulness, gratitude is part of the frame, why is it that I find my life less to be marked by that and more to be marked by grumbling, discontentment, a sense of lacking what it is that I want and what I need. I could give you plenty. You wouldn't even have to go back two days to find examples of the fact that my life is dominated oftentimes by those emotions and those states. Not thankful, ungrateful, discontent. Well, I'd wager to say 
that it's due almost entirely to the two things that Paul addresses in verse 4 and verse 5. It is a shift that happens. It's an emotional, internal shift. It's not a, it's not a reality. Hear me say that. It's happening in my emotional self, but it's not actually happening. But it's a shift of my faith and hope. And the object of my faith and hope. Faith and hope. I cannot live, you cannot live with gratitude or thankfulness without a gospel authored, a gospel in its purest sense, authored faith and hope. If those things are not the frame for my life, you and I are grumblers at best. So let's look at, just briefly, we're going to kind of dance through these because, again, this is kind of an overview. I probably could, we probably could talk all morning on just one of these, but we don't have the time to do that. Faith in Christ Jesus. He says it there in verse 4. He's thankful because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, you, if you've been in church for any period of time, you obviously, um, and my mind immediately goes to the kind of saving act of Christ on my behalf. I get it. It's not because of what I do. It's because of my faith in Jesus. I know I could have never done enough good works. And so that is kind of the thing, believing by faith that he has done this on my behalf, gets me kind of my bus ticket to eternity, which I'm really pretty, I want to talk about ambiguous. I really don't have a clue what that's going to be like. And I really haven't spent any time even journeying with the Lord to know. And so, you know, faith in Jesus, yeah. I would encourage you that this is this statement carries with it so much more weight than just, um, and I'm not minimizing this, don't hear me minimizing it, more than just the salvation aspects of our faith. Ephesians 2, and I'm going to kind of dance through a few different passages here. I'd encourage you to write these down um, because we're not going to have time for you guys to turn to them all. But Ephesians 2 says it like this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. So this is speaking to the salvation aspects. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So even tied to one of the most important verses in all of Scripture about the fact that we are justified, that we are made right before God, by the work of Christ. He's saying, but it's not just about that eternal destination aspect of it. There are things, there are works, there is redemption. He's told it, that he's reconciling the world to, unto himself and that we are the ambassadors of that reconciliation. There are things that he wants to do with you and I right here and right now. So faith cannot just simply be about, oh then, oh when we get there to be with him wherever that is. It has something implicitly to do with how you and I live our lives right this second. Romans 14 goes on to say it this strikingly. This is talking, it's a passage about eating regulations. People, certain people can eat certain things and it's causing other people to stumble. He says this, everything that does not come from faith is sin. That faith is the very place that every action of my life is to be stemming from. Galatians 5, 6 says it like this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
when Paul uses faith and he refers to it here, he has a far more developed idea of what faith means to us than we often choose to see. Faith is to be the primary operating position of our lives. It is one of the paramount aspects of the framework by which I view and see all of life. C.S. Lewis, this is a just gorgeous quote, faith is the art of holding on to things that your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. The art of holding on. I can honestly say this has been such a new revelation for me. So much of my life is not done by faith. So much of my life is done by looking at the opportunities that are before me, assessing what I bring to the table, and then basically deciding, do I have what it takes to do what I'm being asked to or I think I want to do? That is not faith. That is where I've spent major, major portions of my life. I'm talking, some of this is so fresh, it's, it's within the last few months of my life that I'm beginning to see what it looks like for me to step out of faith. Like teaching this Bible study thing some of you are a part of. Do you, do you understand how ridiculous it is that I would stand up in front of people and say, I can teach you how to have a significant time in Scripture? The ridiculousness of that claim. It, it's hilarious. It's, it's a statement that has to be made entirely in faith. And it shocked me so much after I said it that I actually realized I am, in, I am in way over my head because I've actually said I'm going to do something, I'm going to participate in the movement of God in a way that I feel completely incapable of. So, for you and for me, where is that in your life? Is that element even present? Love for all the saints. John 15 says, Remain in my love. He calls people to love each other as I loved you. In verse 15, or sorry, 15 verse 5, he says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's something I'd encourage you to consider in love for all the saints. The word all. Luke 6.32 says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you are good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. I struggle to love my good friends well. I struggle to love my wife well. If we could take time, you probably don't like people in this room. Not struggle to like or love. You, you don't even want to be around them. The call, the ethic, the framework that Paul is saying, and he's celebrating the birth of this in these guys, the love for all the saints, is, is an emphasis on the all. A good indication of whether or not the gospel is increasing as your framework for life is if you find yourself liking or even loving someone you have very little, common, very little in common with on the surface. That's a good litmus test. A good barometer. Do I find myself able to like and even love somebody who's incredibly different than me? But the gospel is the thing that we have in common. This love is born of humility. It's granted by grace. 
through the deep movement of the gospel in our lives. The love for all the saints. Another part of the framework. And the last thing is this. That spring forth, those two things spring forth from hope. Hope is essential for our life in Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Now, if I asked you for your definition of hope, I would wager to say, and this is because this is my definition of hope oftentimes, a cultural understanding of hope is more close to be the word wish. When we speak of hope, we don't talk about hope the way the Bible speaks of hope. We think of it in terms of wishing for something. Something may or may not happen. Many of you probably spent good portions of yesterday wishing that your football team uh, or hoping that your football team uh, was going to win, not knowing whether they would or they won't. Biblical hope is always marked by certainty. And we don't have a time to make a huge defense of that. But certainty that is marked by waiting. Waiting patiently, even waiting with joy in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. A closer translation even in Greek for the word hope is to wait. So in Colossians 1, when he talks about the fact that it is stored up for you in heaven, the gospel that has already come, or when he's saying here in 1 Peter 1, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, He is not talking about something that is possibly going to happen. He is talking about something definitive. There's a certainty that is present in biblical hope that we lack in our cultural understanding of hope. A good friend of mine, Jay Curry, uh, growing up, had a pole barn in his back uh, kind of wooded area. His dad stored cars for people there. And he had in his possession, uh, some of you may be familiar with what a Grand National is. It's a car that was produced in the 80s. Um, Some of you hipster folks who like um, believing that the 80s are still alive right now would deeply appreciate this car. Um, It is a muscle car in every sense. The thing was made to destroy tires. Roast at every stop sign. Um, It had a 454 big block in it. the guy waxed it and covered it. It sat in a pole barn. And I remember literally at about being five years old or so, going out, not five, we must have been in like, I don't know, fifth grade maybe or so, um, going out into the pole barn and uncovering the Grand National. Perfectly black, black leather interior, spotless. Like 120 miles on it. His dad literally would take off the cover, drive it, service it and everything, and put it back in the barn. Because at 16, this was Jay's car. He was seven. For years, the power of this vehicle lay underneath the cloak of a cover in a dirty pole barn. Now, Jay, it was very interesting, as someone whose parents didn't buy me a car, and I'm still deeply angry about this. Jay wasn't having, he probably had a better understanding of what I'm talking about this morning than even I did. He had, it wasn't any less his car, even though he hadn't taken possession of it fully yet. He would go out and we would look at this thing, we would sit in it. I remember the first day I took a a ride in it. 
the power that was in this vehicle was amazing, but it was in his possession long before he had taken and experienced the full reality of it. That is what you and I are experiencing today in hope. We have something in full that we are awaiting. We have something in spirit that we are waiting to experience in body in full, like Jay's Grand National. Romans 8, 22-25. If you want to study a passage on this, this would be the one. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we possess something, or we are in possessed. We are possessed by something, actually. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I don't wait patiently. My life is not marked by patience. And it's oftentimes because I have fallen so out of touch. I am the guy walking past Joshua Bell. I can't even hear the tune of hope. I've fallen so out of touch with the fact that what has happened for me in spirit that my absolute, the implantation of the Holy Spirit in my life, sorry, the projector just kicked on, that scared me to death. Uh, The implantation of the Holy Spirit in my life is, is creating a groan for the redemption of my body that if I don't come in touch with, if I don't begin to understand, I will ruin everything in my life in pursuit of trying to satisfy that groan. Second Corinthians or First Corinthians thirteen twelve talks about what will happen for us. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Philippians three, Paul talked about the fact that all is a loss. Everything that he had done in his life. If you read the first part of Philippians 3, he had done a lot. He considered it all a loss to knowing Jesus Christ. Not just cognitively grasping this, knowing him in an experiential sense. Hope gives us a context for our pain. Look to Romans 5 for that. Suffering stops being something we avoid at all costs and begins to be something that the Lord uses to actually strengthen our hope brings us back into the framework Vincent McNabb says it like this hope is as some extraordinary spiritual grace that God gives us to control our fears not to oust them to be in our fears in our uncertainty in the sorrow, in the pain of the life that we're in, not to get out of it. The result of staying in the framework of faith, of love, of hope, of thankfulness is a peace and joy that transcends our circumstances. Rest is the result of rightly placed hope. And the last thing I'll say about this And this is an important thing. I don't mean to minimize it. It's a massively important thing. This is important for community. 
you don't, I don't wait well when we wait alone. Have you ever waited alone for something for a long time? Like stood in an inordinately long line by yourself? What is the experience of that versus doing it with somebody that you love and that you're a good friend with? I'll just encourage you, we don't wait well when we wait by ourselves. We don't stay in the framework. We don't have any appreciation, any ability to even navigate the suffering of our lives if we're doing it by ourselves. Lewis said it like this, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. You and I do not wait well alone. Can you hear the tune, guys? The Lord is playing the violin in the subway station of your life. He's a master violinist. Will you slow down just for a second? This is what this table is about. Slow down and let the fact of what Jesus has done for us be everything. Spurgeon said if Christ is anything, he's got to be everything. Let this be everything. Stop for this moment, even if this is the only moment you stop this week, and listen to the tune of the hope, of the love, of the faith that has its origin in Christ. And may it birth as you kneel before these elements and take them a deep place of gratitude for the work that God has done on our behalf. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we come to your table, um, even that explanation, Lord, feels so inadequate. Um, My words uh, just don't even do it justice, Jesus. Uh, I pray that uh, in spite of everything, uh, Lord, that we bring to the table, Lord, that we would come to this table now as people desperately in need of having you reorient us to the context of the truth, Father. We trust you for that, Jesus, in your name. Amen.